Hello and welcome to Explore the Symphony. I'm your host, Marjolaine Fournier, Assistant Principal Bass with the National Arts Centre Orchestra. My guest, Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler, is one of Canada's foremost music journalists, credited with over 60 articles for Le Droit, The Globe and Mail, and CBC Radio-Canada. In this series, we discuss the inspiration, lives, and music of great composers. This season, we're studying music that changed music. Hello and welcome to Studio P3. I'm sitting here with Jean-Jacques Van Vlasler and we're going to be talking about Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 8 within the series Explore the Symphony. And this season's subject is music that has changed the way we listen to music. And I have to tell you, Jean-Jacques, that this time, this piece of music didn't really change the way I listen to all music, but the way I listen to Beethoven. I discovered suddenly, uh, and I've played this symphony a number of times, but I suddenly discovered another side of Beethoven that I hadn't really thought about, imagined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And um, let's say that the that Eighth Symphony has been composed at the same time as the Seventh Symphony. And, you know, in one of his letters to, um, to Salomon, the entrepreneur in London, concert entrepreneur in London, Beethoven is asking, you know, which publisher could I find in Great Britain to, 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 to publish? I have two symphonies ready, seven and eight. The seventh is a, it's a, it's a big thing. It's a large one. And then a smaller one, a smaller one, which is the Eighth Symphony. Now, smaller one. Uh, he he liked very much the smaller one, and he said it's uh, it's 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 uh, it's so much better. Now, to some of his friends, th this has been quoted twice. It's so much better, so much better than what? Um, that is still open, but he did like it very much, and uh, it is a it is a symphony, and uh, that opens up the difference between the classical symphony and what he produces as a somebody who knows about classical music. What I'm saying is, um, it is a classical symphony for movements, smallish, uh, between 25 and 27 minutes, um, very straightforward, uh, very straightforward movements uh, with a minuetto in it. It's, uh, it's saying hello to Haydn, it's saying hello to Mozart up to a certain point. But what he does is, within that very classical framework, it is real Beethoven. It is real Beethoven. So what he's showing to people, he said, look over the last 20 years how music has progressed. So it was telling people, you know, you're listening to different music. <laughs> that is one thing. The second thing is that, um, and I do think it's very important when one, when one listens to to. Beethoven's music, but not only to Beethoven's music, to let's say to uh, to all the great composers' music, they don't always reflect what uh, is happening around him, what he and I put it between, uh, you know, uh, what he feels, what uh, he should be saying at the moment that he's composing it. 
these are very difficult times for him. You know, he, he lost the great love of his life. He will be composing a song later, An die Ferne Geliebte, to the faraway beloveds, and uh, which will be one of the most important things in his career because this is the song that, or this is the document that you will find at the, uh, next to his deathbed, which he will keep at the, until the last moment. Has he sent it? We don't know. Has he kept a copy? We don't know, but it, it was there. And he's, in an, he's not well. Uh, the summer 1812, uh, when he composes that, his doctor sends him to, to these cities where you know, people have their baths and uh, drink the, 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 oh, the, 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 the healing waters. Uh, he goes to uh, Karlsbad that summer, uh, Carlo Vivari. You know, uh, he goes to Franzbad, uh, Frantiskoi Laznie, um, and then he goes back to Teplitz. And, and it's that summer because he's not feeling well. He has, um, he has uh, uh, intestinal difficulties and he has a big cold also at the same time. Um, things are not going very well. And um, he composes this light symphony, this sparkling thing. So it's not the only time he did it in his life. And I want to give a little other example in the production of, Ma uh, of uh, Beethoven's uh, symphonies. Um, there is the second symphony. There is the other lighter symphony. You know, not the big metaphysical stuff of the third symphony, of the seventh symphony, of, of the, and the fifth symphony. No, another night. That is a terrible part of his life too. What's happening? That's the time he's composing Heiligenstadt, uh, uh, his will, Heiligenstadt's will. Where you could easily predict that this man will die. Oh, yes. He he's, will die of sadness or just die, die. of... Uh, That's when he yes. discovers that, that his deafness won't go away, that it will become worse and worse. And so that second symphony, 1802, and then this one, 1812, at moments that very important things have happened, negative things have happened to him, his deafness and then his great love. And he composes these wonderful sparkling symphonies. Beethoven said that he, what you're saying is that you don't look, he, he said that he liked to paint a portrait with his music. But he doesn't tell us what the portrait is. And we've, I, and particularly me, I've sinned because I always tend to look into the piece and poor Beethoven, he was deaf, unloved, poor, etc. But this, this brought to light for me uh, a man who was humorous, who uh, he, he was humorous and he was funny. He liked to make puns. He was very smart. He was exuberant when he was angry, but exuberant when he was being funny also. And his music and this symphony is full of these jokes or these big chords that interrupt everything. And then everything goes on very peacefully, very happily. Yes, yes. And you see, in that, he also um, says a far away hello to Haydn. Haydn did the same thing. He did the same thing. So it is, it is Haydn, Beethoven. There is a very nice uh, relationship there between Haydn and Beethoven, also in the humor. It's right. a different kind of humor, but humor being distance-taking, that is uh, changing tonalities, very, very stopping and doing something totally different afterwards. But it, and, and, and then making it as a, a, 
as a f- fabulous unit <laughs> at the end because this this symphony um, uh, ends with a, 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 a remarkable movement, which is the pièce de résistance <laughs> of the of the of the symphony. And, and isn't it rare that the last movement is the biggest movement? Uh, it is. It's becoming more and more important in Beethoven's life because uh, from the uh, that symphony opens up the Ninth Symphony. The last movement in the Ninth Symphony is... Now, the Ninth Symphony is still about nine, uh, nine years away. <laughs> There is a long period of depression after this, after, mm. this, uh, after this Eighth Symphony, uh, from abs- uh, about 1812 till 1818, six years of it, and in which he only composes five important works, two son- piano sonatas, two cello sonatas, and the famous lead, An die ferne Geliebte, Um, to this faraway love or beloved. Let's dive into the fourth movement. It's, it's crazy. Uh, it, it's a, a wild little uh, a bubbly thing, interrupted or, or the, the links aren't these very complicated bridges and, uh, and, and, and uh, developments as much as this octave. And I don't think I've seen that anywhere else in Beethoven where that's, that's his link. You're absolutely right. That, that, that is his link. And then what he does with all that, you know, there's this, this energy, this propulsive driving energy that is behind it, and which is one of the great signatures of Beethoven, of course. And, 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 and at the same time, it is overflowing, overflowing with joy. And, uh, and it resembles the finale of the Second Symphony. It does resemble also the finale of the Seventh Symphony. Now, I must say, Seventh and Eighth Symphony, like the Fifth and the Sixth Symphony, have been composed exactly at the same time. Double. You know, uh, remember when we did our uh, presentation of uh, the, uh, the Ravel uh, piano, con- uh, piano Concerto, two piano concertos at the same time, a darker one and a lighter one. Well, here you have two symphonies. People think, well, I composed first the Seventh Symphony, then the Eighth Symphony. In fact, he wrote first drafts of the Eighth Symphony before the Seventh Symphony at the end of 1811. And then he will throw himself into the Seventh Symphony. So it, these two symphonies are composed in the same mi- uh, f- uh, mind frame, uh, the same atmosphere. And uh, the end of the Seventh Symphony is also this energy, this propulsive energy, this overflowing joy, which you will find in the Second Symphony. And that's why I think my, not my theory, but my, uh, uh, the, the comparisons I have made with the Second Symphony are absolutely, absolutely right. Now, what he does also in that last symphony, whether you're, uh, the last, in, the, in the last symphony, in the last movement, of course, um, I, uh, is a very long coda and, uh, and, a, and, a last, and a development, a final development, which take up half the, the length of that, that uh, last movement. And he does 220 measures. Uh, bars. Uh, bars. Yes. On, 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 out of 502. 
220 bars out of 502 uh, for, for the coda and the, and the final development. So, so final development in coda. So it's half half the time. And it's a very, very strange thing. Uh, Igor Markevich, great conductor of a few years ago, uh, spoke about a prodigious finale. It is indeed one of the most audacious movements uh, by, by Beethoven, that last movement, and it, and it is the piece de résistance. But what about his, well, I always read into these things, but still, uh, he's in a terrible time in his life. Nothing is going very well. He's fighting with his brother. He's got no money. He's sick. The, the works. And then he writes this, this candy of a second movement where you're used to getting a second movement, a slow movement that will be a little introspective, pensive. Um, and here you have... A, a dance almost a, a, a scherzando a scherzando you know um, something 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 fun The Italian, the origin of the word scherzando is um, is a light little uh, diversion. Mm -hmm. oh, it is. That it is. Sure. So that's what he. That's what he. And what is that diversion about? It, it, it's an allegretto, in fact. Huh? The tempo is an allegretto, and um, what happens there is that he he will take the the, uh, the, the it's a takeoff of the metronome. And it's uh, a kind of hello to Mr. Melzel, who has invented the metronome, who is a good friend of his, who has helped him organize concerts. And uh, so um, we can find that also in the, a bit in the Seventh Symphony. His Eighth Symphony, for me, well, I'm a bass player, but I find that even in the second movement, which is a beautiful piece of music, there's interruptions. And, this, and a lot of the interruptions are made by the, the bass area of the orchestra where we, we have this light, light theme, and then the basses come in and go, doga, 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 doga. what does that mean? Why did he put that in there? <laughs> you should have asked Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, for no, me, why? each movement contains something like this. But uh, the, he, he loves those interruptions. We talked about that. He loves those interruptions because this is, this is part of his... Haydn does the same thing. Uh -huh. Haydn does the same and thing. And Haydn was his teacher. And Haydn was, you know, in fact, symphony-wise... The, 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 the line of the evolution of the symphonies goes from Haydn to Beethoven, not Mozart. I mean, not Mozart. He learns lots of things, other things from Mozart, but it won't be the opera, it won't be the voice, it won't be the, the symphonies. It will be much more in chamber music and the piano concertos, of course. 
And the other movement that is uh, very uh, interesting, well, they're all very interesting once you look at them in this optic, the third movement. Now, you're used to hearing the third, well, you, I call them menuets, and where you have two movements that are tied together, the two menuets, uh, in, uh, generally in symphony, two contrasting often. Uh, movements, uh, but tied together by tonality, often the second menuet is in a minor key, a little bit slower, but here he stays in a major key. He stays in the major key. But and, it, and it's a beautiful, if, if we, we can, it's a beautiful horn solo, very light, very um, uh, lovely. Yeah. Beautiful, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's showing off his instruments and showing off his happiness. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, there is vitality in that, uh, in that third movement. There is, uh, it's, it's healthy. Very much. It's an, an healthy, and I'm pushing, you know, I, I put that word in now because I do think that he said, listen, even if I'm not well, my music is well. Exactly. This is the conclusion I, I came to when I was listening uh, to it while I prepared. I thought, look at this. He's, he puts in these exclamations, these interruptions, that beautiful horn solo. Will he take it down? Will he take it to a darker thing? No. And it's almost as if he's telling us, ah, here I could, but I won't. Yes. And, and in fact, you're absolutely right. For, for example, where in the development of the first movement, yes. uh, there are moments of tension. Diminished of, chords. Uh, diminished chords. But he doesn't develop it. He says, listen, <laughs> you know, th there are darker sides in life, but, you know, we are in a... I, I want to show you what I can do in good moods and, and vitality and life and health and, and let's go forward. But afterwards, he will have his big depression, of course, and then he won't compose very much anymore. And then, uh, you know, you know what Berlioz, to come back to the last movement, said about this, and I, 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 it reminds me of it. He said in, in French, "étincelant de verve, sparkling with zest." For the last movement, Berlioz liked very much also that last movement. Musicians like very much that that symphony, because at the same time he is at the top of his writing. It is pure musical writing. Beethoven is fully behind it, and he can take distance from all those things that are happening in 1811, 1812, um, all these women that don't want from him, the big love with Teresa von Brunswick. Who goes then off, the, and they all uh, go off and, and get married. And Bettina also, yeah. and then the young Amélie Sebald, the summer of 1812. But that is, that is a nice platonic flirt, but it gives him, my God, somewhere on the horizon there is there is some light, you know, and and perhaps it gives him also hope. She, and she was a, a bubbly personality, Amelia Sebald, and and she must be in there somewhere. point was he he couldn't really play in public there were contraptions developed for him he even had something of a 
a bar that was fixed to the piano and he would hold it between his teeth so that the music would resonate in his head. But also there's stories and letters of him, um, well, of course, being very loud when he was angry and loud when he was happy because he was deaf. So, of course, he had no volume control anymore, but him walking in the fields and gesticulating and uh, stopping to write something down and singing very loud. So how did he create? Uh, there are two parts to your question. Yes. Um, the, the, first, the first one is when he uh, put on piano <laughs> what he heard in his mind because that's what happens. That is the second part of the question, you know. One, the, 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 the hearing system is, uh, is simply ca uh, capting uh, or uh, capte, uh, to, to, to take in the sounds. That's what our ears are for. But the whole thing happens between the ears and, uh, and the brain. And, and it's the brain that decodes. And it's in the brain that he has his music, obviously. I mean, it's, it's not in his ears that he has his music. Now, they are the, they are the go-between <laughs> between reality and uh, what he has ideally as sounds in his brain. Now, when he sits at the piano and he tries to work out what he has in his mind, um, he has to hear it. So he needs the, 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 the basic vibrations, you know, the, 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 the lower, lower parts of the vibrations, essentially, because that's what he can hear through the, that kind of piping system that he organized. Um, there is that wonderful um, Scottish percussionist um, who, who, when she comes and plays as a soloist with an orchestra, but she walks, she doesn't have any shoes on. And uh, uh, she is... Uh, 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 she uh, well, Evelyn Glennie has uh, 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 walks barefooted. Why? Because she hears the orchestra play through her feet. Uh -huh. So she that's the, how that works. Uh, yeah, that's how it works. We we hear not only through the air outside. We hear through our bone system. So the one big problem that Beethoven had that was caused by, it wasn't composing, well, it was frustrating most probably, but it was to earn a living because if he had played, he was a great pianist, from what I understand, very, very solid. And that's how he could have earned a living was by concertizing. Sure. And then because he couldn't play anymore, that was the problem. But concerts had to be organized specially for, for each, each time. There were, you know, when pe in the beginning of the 19th century, people would hear a work once, <laughs> or composers would never hear the works they had composed. Schubert didn't hear most of his symphonic works. So they, they composed these things, put these things away. What they heard was, of course, their songs. What they heard were their piano works sometimes, you know, duos, trios, yes, yes, but concerts. So orchestras were starting to get organized and uh, Beethoven, and I can, I can say for the Seventh Symphony, which he composed almost at the same time, he composed it in, uh, from the end of 1811 till uh, May 1812. Um, he, uh, that will be premiered on the 7th and 8th of December 1813. 
and he uh, and that was a concert that was organized as a fundraiser for uh, the uh, um, Austrian soldiers that had fought the French army of Bonaparte uh, uh, in Hanau. So nothing of that came to him. And it was hel- uh, he, the one who had helped organize it was Melzel, the, the one who had invented the, the metronome, which Beethoven imitates in the Eighth Symphony and partially in the Seventh Symphony. So they were quite close at that time. Then what happened afterwards, this symphony, the Eighth Symphony, was premiered uh, on the 27th of February 1814. And uh, that was finally, and it's an answer to your question, finally brought in some money for Beethoven himself. Tell me, uh, I, uh, as I was preparing, um, I came across some letters, some correspondence of Beethoven with his editors, which are very funny. He was a funny guy in writing, oh, Beethoven. Yes, he yes. could be very funny. He liked to tease people, gave them names. And, but the thing is, it's about corrections to his piano versions of his symphony. And so I'm, I'm curious to know, who were these piano editions for? Would that be a, f- a fundraising effort also? Would pianists want to play his symphonies? They, well, possibly, yes, yes. And piano versions were the only ways for people to hear the symphonies very often. Uh-huh. So, um, and that's why Franz Liszt made so many variations on the symphonies by Beethoven or uh, extensions on the symphonies of uh, Beethoven or simply imitated them and gave his version of a piano version of the the, 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 the symphonies of Beethoven. And it's only one example. You know, uh, the piano was the instrument of the bourgeois time of the 19th century. And most of the families had, had pianos at home. And that's the way they listened to the symphonies. They didn't have CBC to listen to it or Radio Canada. <laughs> so you had somebody who would sit down maybe? And would play uh, as well as they could. Bang it out. <laughs> Bang it out. Fifth Symphony or the Eighth Symphony, which we were talking about. <laughs> well, Jean-Jacques, thank you so much. I'm looking forward very much to playing this, uh, this Eighth Symphony, which I've done. You know, we, we play it quite regularly, but somehow... I will be playing it with a refreshed mind, a refreshed ear, and that's thanks to you. Both of us will listen to it with a refreshed ear. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again. You're welcome. That's all for this edition of Explore the Symphony. Send your comments and questions to nacpodcasts at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Check out our sister podcast, the NACOcast, with the NAC Orchestra's principal bassoon, Christopher Millard. 
You can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcast.ca or searching for NACCNA in the iTunes Music Store. Musical excerpts provided by Naxos of Canada. So until next time, this is Marjolaine Fournier saying thank you and goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.